Screw it, screw it, we're just gonna talk about Spider-Man. Hello and welcome to this special bittersweet episode of Screw It, we're just gonna talk about Spider-Man. Uh, we're here to give a eulogy to the uh, late great Stan Lee. Uh, I'm one of your two co-hosts, my name is Will Hines. I am your other co-host, I'm Kevin Hines, I'm Will's brother. We were both UCB comedians and teachers. And uh, Kevin lives on the East Coast, specifically in New Jersey, within the wake of New York City, which is the center of Marveldom in many ways. Uh, Certainly its stories and its original offices. And I am a West Coaster in California, Los Angeles, perhaps the second capital of Marvel, of the Marvel Empire, since this is where the the movies and the TV shows have mostly gotten made. Yeah, we picked those cities just to be close to Marvel epicenters. Yeah, our lives were in different cities. And then when we wanted to do this podcast, we said, well, if we're going to talk about a Marvel character, we got to we got to go to where the action is. Yeah. So I picked New Jersey. <laughs> and I picked East Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so, Kevin, yeah, we have a bittersweet uh, reason. So our podcast had ended, season one had ended, but we're, we're coming back to do a special episode for a bittersweet reason, which is that Stan Lee has passed on, has died. The news the news came yesterday over the wires. Yeah, uh, he was 95, and uh, he had, hadn't been in great health, I think, the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, it was sort of a, uh, it seemed like he had recovered. I think that happens uh, uh, pretty often where, like, you'll hear, like, oh, this person's out of the... Out of trouble, they're getting better, and then they just pass. Yeah, it's it's always an interesting feeling when somebody who's um, quite elderly dies. That's famous. Like you know, it, it doesn't feel right to say it's a tragedy. This guy had a long and successful life. He was at a he was he was old, and that's the reality of life. At the on the other hand, it, it is sad. Like he was sick. Like he was not great health, but it doesn't sound like he was like dying of cancer or just in and out of hospitals constantly. It sounds like he was in relatively good health for a ninety five year old. Yeah. Um, time. but it's still sad, isn't it? Like, I mean, it was a gut punch when I heard the news. It's, it's, and, and it's interesting that we feel that way. It's like, well, well, what did you think was going to happen? But on the other hand, it's like, well, I'm just used to this guy being around. I'm used to these, just his cameos in the movies. And I'm used to just hearing outrageously fun quotes from him still promoting Marvel products all these years later. Yeah. It's, uh, he, I mean, he was still doing events. I think he was doing them less frequently, but the idea that that won't be happening anymore is sad um, for the community. He's still, he's still beloved despite everything, uh, which, you know, whether that be controversy or just time uh, and just like it's younger fans who didn't grow up reading his books and he's still sort of loved. He's a fun so, guy. Yeah. One, one of the, the silver linings of uh, somebody passing on is you get to read all these great tributes from people who knew them and like, or even just people who were affected and influenced by them. And I've really enjoyed online reading like different things that people have said, uh, you know, just from like everyday people, um, like comic book fans. And then you even have people like Frank Miller and J.M. DeMatty's co- comic book creators that we love talking about their feelings. Neil Gaiman, um, yeah. Yes, Frank Miller tweeted, devastated by my pal Stan's passing. He was a childhood inspiration and instructor to me when I was just getting started and a genuinely sweet man. will miss him terribly. Wow. Just, That's very high praise. Um, yeah, Miller, this, uh, this is a, some people think uh, was one of the best when he and, was at his best. Uh, yeah, here's Neil Gaiman's quote. I was first interviewed for Stanley's obituary about 20 years ago. I was happy he defied the Reaper and carried on. With Stan gone, an era really does come to an end. He was the happy huckster that comics needed, and he really did alliterate like that when you talked to him. <laughs> I mean, that's a very warm and sweet yeah. tribute in a very short amount of uh, space. It's uh, uh, I, With Kirby and Ditko having already passed, it's sort of the end. Like Those three are the big titans of that era. Yeah, they are the creators of the Silver Age, and in my mind, and in a lot of people's minds. Yeah. So I thought I thought we'd just do a quick eulogy, and we would mostly say what a lot of people are saying out there, which is like, what made Stan special? Why do we love him so much? A little bit of his impact, and um, and uh, so Kevin, I'll put it to you: like, why? What's so special about Stanley? Like, what? What? Why? Why are we sad? I mean, well, there's a. 
what's special about him is hard to answer because there's a lot of things I think are special about him. He, but the main thing is that he put together this Marvel universe. I mean, I don't, there's no Marvel universe without Stan. Yeah, Absolutely you, not. You need, you need Kirby and Ditko's talent, but you needed Stan to make it happen. Yeah, I mean, this the, the word I was finding myself using yesterday was architect. Like he picked. He hired Kirby. He hired Ditko. He made the Marvel Universe one place that was connected. Uh, something I think that's interesting about him, and, and maybe not the most interesting thing, so maybe it's a weird place to start, but he's he. I think he's a good salesman. Sure. Oh, like, yeah. The, the best. Sold the idea of making comics to Timely. Or they, I guess they're already making comics, but he sold the idea of like putting him in charge and doing superhero comics and convinced them to take risks like he was putting out comics that were not like he wasn't doing carbon copies of dc comics like if you wanted to play it safe what what i'm sure his publishers and and editor uh, his bosses wanted him to do were like do a superman book do right, a batman right. book do a justice he, league book and he, even when yeah even when he was told to do a justice league book he did the fantastic four right and how much of that was kirby and how much of that was him doesn't matter it's like this book was made lee believed in it he said no nah, this is our justice league book not a group of heroes that have already been established, a family that fights and one of them can't turn back into a human. And uh, even for the first issue, they don't even wear costumes. Yeah. No secret identities. It's very different than Justice League. It's really, other than it's a team, it has nothing else in common. And it worked. And he it knew that. It was a huge hit. Spider-Man was nothing like any other character and it worked. And the Hulk was nothing like any other character. Uh, and it worked. I mean, it just he made this good stuff, and he sort of trusted it was good, and believed in himself, and believed in Kirby, believed in Ditko, and was able to sell that to his publisher. Was able to sell that to the fans. Yeah, he, um, yeah, he was a visionary who could, he really was a, a salesman and a politician. Uh, and what he was selling was doing stuff differently in Marvel, and then. And then convincing both the creators and the readers and the whole world, this is special. And and he was right, and he he got his way. And before we even get into his writing, I I, I think to some extent his the fact that he was writing all the books helped him sell this stuff because he was able to force into things that I think he thought would hook people, like the connectedness of the Marvel universe, which is huge. Yeah. Um. Let, let's get into a little bit because. Uh, uh, I don't know. I, I can't imagine anybody listening to this doesn't know, but let's just get into a little bit of sure. like Stan Lee in early 1960s Marvel. I mean, this this is when he really make, you know, he's at peak powers and this is when he creates all the things that would end up being the legacy that we're talking about today. But this is like because he's he's partly a writer. He's partly not a writer. He's 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 partly a salesman and he's partly an artist. I mean, he's he's a fascinating combination of things. I don't even quite know how to get into it, but um, I mean, it's we we've talked about it a lot on the Spider-Man podcast. Like with him and Ditko, Steve Ditko, the illustrator of Spider-Man. Part of the fascinating things is the weird collaboration they had. Yeah, um, and it makes it it makes it hard to say who did what or like who is of what to what credit. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I guess in DC didn't work this way, but Marvel mostly worked by what was called the Marvel method, which I think was just to help maintain the workloads that Kirby and Stan Lee had on themselves. Yeah. And that Marvel method was that Stan and the artist would talk about an idea. The artist would go and write and draw that comic. Yep. Sometimes with placeholder dialogue, definitely with notes on the margins, but they would figure all the details out. Like they'd leave with a plot idea. The Fantastic Four are going to fight, an otherworldly being who comes to the planet to eat it. Uh, <laughs> and yeah. they will deal, uh, get help from this watcher character. And that's sort of it. And then like Kirby would go and draw like two issues of that. And Stanley would go and put dialogue in there. Yeah. And maybe, and maybe they would discuss some of the tent pole turning points of the story. Like, Oh, but you know, only Johnny can go get this tool and, and Sue is concerned about him cause it's her brother and then, or whatever, you know, and, and the thing wants to be the guy who does this and he risks his life this way or something. And like, um, so yeah, you had this like, 
like you know marvel is such a behemoth now it's such a media empire comic book empire such an institution that it's really interesting to think about it in 1961 1962 when it's a company that nobody's heard of nobody cares about and within four years three guys basically stan lee jack kirby steve ditko turn it into the the place the place in the in the business yeah i think timely was like mostly doing pulp magazines they were doing some comic books probably when he started there i mean there's people who out there who have documented this so much better than us so we're definitely wandering into territory where we only know like the gist i want to say but yeah it's something like stan well it was stan's like in-law like martin goodman was like a relative who owned this magazine company in the 40s hired stan as a gopher and then he became a writer eventually i think after jack kirby left lee's cousin was married to martin goodman yeah so he was just somebody who gave his so martin was this magazine owner who was doing pulp magazines and short stories that hired his cousin-in-law um as a favor or something little did he know that he just hired the guy that was going to transform his company into the most powerful company in 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 the business and then he like worked his way up to being a writer in the 40s and he did that throughout the 50s that's where he kind of just like put his time in and grind out a bunch of like probably probably boring stuff right or at least just like workman like normal stuff yeah i mean he was doing horror and science fiction and i mean mild horror because of comic comic book horror yeah and uh romance novel novels i think there were a lot of those sort of like jokey like you know archie like low level archie ripoffs basically right right um and then and then, you know, the big turning point is something that's been talked about in a lot of different ways. But um, Stan was getting tired of it. He had dreams of being a writer and doing more substantial stuff. Yep. Uh, he was getting tired of doing all these bland stories. Also combined with DC had a little bit of a resurgence. It would get eclipsed by Marvel. Yeah, but like they in the late 50s, it's sort of started bringing back superheroes like Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman were still the mainstays. Around, but most of their other heroes had sort of faded away and weren't being published anymore. And then they brought back the Flash, uh, sort of reworked the Flash as uh, Barry Allen mm-hmm. uh, instead of Jay Garrick. Yeah, new costume, new look. And they did that to Green Lantern, too. Yeah, so they had done it to a few characters, uh, created some new characters like Aquaman, uh, and then teamed them all, them all up as the Justice League, sort of the modernization of their old Justice Society comic. And those books were selling pretty well. Right, so Martin Goodman, this guy who had been these running this comic book company with Stan Lee as one of his main writers said, Hey, let's do a justice league. And he definitely wanted just to cash in. Yeah. But Stan who was getting tired of it and had spent now like over 10 years doing all this stuff. Um, this is where he begins to make the Marvel universe and he takes Jack Kirby, who he, who he knows is he knew Kirby he, was great and a talent and a singular genius. This is the other thing that Stan Lee was great at was he hired amazing people. He seemed to have an eye for who was the best. Um, yeah, we, we've talked be, about that in our podcast before, but he knew that Kirby, uh, he knew how good Kirby was. He didn't take that for granted. Even if he took too much credit later on, he knew that Kirby was amazing. It's the reason Kirby drew and or started most of the books at the Marvel universe is because Lee trusted him to make them good. I'm sure there's an answer to this question that people who have researched knows, but it's like, yeah, why wasn't Jack Kirby working why was jack kirby available like why wasn't he, why hadn't dc gobbled him up why hadn't steve ditko been gobbled up by dc somehow stan seemed to look around at who was available and know who the best people were hey and I, this is my guess i think there was some aspect that dc had like a house style they didn't like you to vary from it and, and also, these guys were think, these guys were very individual and i think timely paid pretty well okay and i okay. don't know how that's possible um, well, I think it could be that they paid a good page rate, you know, your money per page, but yeah. then they would never give you any percentage of ownership of the characters. So sure. I think that in was the short though of all comics, the industry in the industry. Yeah. So short run, good money. But long term, once a character exploded, you would leave the company in anger because they're getting rich and you're yeah. not. I don't but, know. But again, I, I don't, that's I don't, true of DC as well. Yeah. People, you know, at least at this point, it's not like Siegel and Schuster are cashing in on Superman. Well, Stan Lee was smart enough to be like, hey, Jack, let's do a Justice League. We're going to do it different, and I'm going to let you do it how you want, and I've got some concerns and ways that I want it done. It's not quite going to be what my cousin-in-law is asking. 
and they made the Fantastic Four and pretty much created the Marvel Universe with that with that comic book. Yeah, Fantastic Four was a big hit immediately, really, uh, right out of the gate. Um, they were different and they were unique. They were eye-catching. Uh, and they they were sitting there on the stands near the DC books and people saw them and picked them up and read them. There's something uneven about the initial Fantastic Four stories because it's part monster book, part superhero. Um, there's some inconsistency there. Like why can only the thing – why is only the thing stuck in his monstrous form? Uh, but I think a lot of this made it feel different and cool and edgy. And uh, not not made by a factory, but made by artists. Yeah, there's... and plus Stan's dialogue, his incredible personality, his salesman, his hucksterism, which is a word that uh, um, people are using a lot, was so funny. Like, there's just such a personality in these in these early Marvel comics, and that's Stan. Yeah, I don't know how quickly all that stuff came into it. But I think almost immediately. But the idea that you're reading these comics and there's almost a voice outside the comics like on all the letters pages and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the ads for other comics that are just sort of like a voice of this industry versus it feels like to me you'd read the dc comics and it was a sort of cold being like mm-hmm. hey there's also a new issue of the flash out and we're doing a collection of the best um, yeah. batman stories and instead in marvel books it'd be like you can't miss spider-man <laughs> the strangest hero you've ever seen and, and <laughs> it was like a commercial more than just like a notice. I like how the cover of Fantastic Four number one, it says the world's greatest comics magazine. Or did that start at number three? Very early on, yeah. on the on the cover of Fantastic Four, Stan was putting the world's greatest comics magazine, which is so funny to do that so early. <laughs> I love him. I mean, like, I think this is one of the main things about Stan, in addition to hiring great people and and being impatient with the way things were done and and letting people have their independence, you know, both as a combination of laziness and also just like respect for the artist. But um, Stan, if you're a reader reading comics, Stan's talking right to you in a way that nobody else was doing. Yes. Like you felt there was somebody sitting in the Marvel offices who was thinking about you, the reader, and who knew what you wanted and who was and was and that, that you were the most important person in this whole operation. And it was really fun. And if you're a kid, you notice when people are talking to you. They're talking right to you, like second person style. And it, and it was great. I mean, it's addictive. I still love it. Like there's been a lot of people have been posting a lot of the old Stan Soapbox quotes. Yes. And uh, I, I love Stan Soapbox. Soapbox was basically a column he wrote on like the kind of Marvel business ad page, right? Yeah, and it would just be like an op-ed basically from Stan Lee, you know, on some issue related to Marvel Comics. Uh, Yeah, and and those were even going maybe not uh, every, I think monthly maybe, when we were reading comics in the 80s. He was doing those long after he had stopped writing and, and editing and doing any real direct Marvel work. Stan wanted, Stan in high school wanted to be a writer and he was a voracious reader. You can tell from his writing. He had a great vocabulary and a real love of words and wordsmithing. And I think he was inspired to be sort of like a newspaperman who would like write about the issues of the day. You know, like I think some corner of his brain, he wanted to be like a New Yorker columnist or a New York Times op-ed guy or something like that. Like, and so he was a comic book publisher. Well, he puts an op-ed in it. You know, he has a letters column, just like a newspaper. Um, here, here's, here is a Stan soapbox that's been pasted around a lot. This is from the late 60s. Um, let's lay it right on the line. Bigotry and racism are among the deadliest social ills plaguing the world today. But unlike a team of costume supervillains, they can't be halted with a punch in the snoot or a zap from a ray gun. The only way to destroy them is to expose them, to reveal them for the insidious evils they really are. The bigot is an unreasoning hater, one who hates blindly, fanatically, indiscriminately. If his hang-up is black men, he hates all black men. If a redhead once offended him, he hates all redheads. If some foreigner beat him to a job, he's down in all foreigners. He hates people he's never seen, people he's never known, with equal intensity, with equal venom. Now, we're not trying to say it's unreasonable for one human being to bug another, 
But although anyone has the right to dislike another individual, it's totally irrational, patently insane to condemn an entire race, to despise an entire nation, to vilify an entire religion. Sooner or later, we must learn to judge each other on our own merits. Sooner or later, if a man is ever to be worthy of his destiny, we must fill our hearts with tolerance. For then and only then will we be truly worthy of the concept that man was created in the image of God, a God who calls us all his children. I mean, this is something aimed at 12-year-olds, right? Like, this is yeah. like, I mean, what an awesome little essay to drop. Yeah, it starts off a little silly, too, just like a punch in the snoot. Well, I even love that he uses the word snoot. I mean, he he, he was a true... Um, you know, he, he gets criticized for taking too much credit because he did so much collaborating with Kirby and Ditko and other people. And then he would call himself the writer. Uh, and I think that is a fair criticism. He definitely went through a long phase of letting himself get too much credit. But on the other hand, he was a good writer. He was a passionate writer. He had a real love of, he had a real zest and vim in his writing. And it's very evident in what I just read there. Yeah, and if you've been listening to this podcast at all, you, you've heard us talk about the issues where it seems like Stan didn't like them as much or didn't put as much time into them, and they're not as good for it. They're, yeah. they're missing something. Uh, he was crucial. I mean, like, yeah, I, I think I think I've said this before on previous episodes, but like to to be a fan of Marvel Comics, you you go through sort of an, an arc with Stan Lee, and you initially love him because he's your friend. He's talking to you. You know his personality. Then you you know you start to like get, become more of a fan. You read lots of comics, and you're just like the Stan Lee's guy is a genius. Then you read about how oh actually Jack Kirby made all these characters, and Steve Ditko made these characters, and like Stan probably didn't work out the story quite as much as he's letting on. And then you become angry on behalf of the artist. You're like Stan, you jerk, <laughs> you you helped rip off Jack Kirby. You go through this phase like a backlash of disliking him, you know. And, and feeling like, well, I went too far. I, I have to tear down the statue of my hero in my mind. <laughs> yeah. And, and then you settle back into something like, no, you know what? He is a genius. He was essential. He was a, a singular personality that transformed an industry. And it, absolutely true, he did not do it 100%. There's nothing he really did 100% himself. But he, he was the straw that stirs the drink. And without him, there is no argument. Without him, there's no Marvel Universe. Yeah, um, here's the thing uh, Gabriel Hardman wrote on Twitter, and he is a comic book writer artist Okay, uh, who uh, I raved about his Green Lantern Earth One uh, book he did. I recommend it was one of my recommendations. Mm -hmm. uh, he's drawn a bunch of things for Marvel. He also does a lot of uh, storyboarding for motion pictures. Uh, like I think he did some storyboarding for like Interstellar or something like that. Yeah. Um, but he's great. He's a really talented artist. Anyway, he wrote this. Uh, sad to hear about the passing of Stan Lee. The work he did with co-creators like Kirby and Ditko obviously had a huge impact on comics and their broader culture. But I think it was his particular brand of humanism that made those stories resonate. For me, the original run of Spider-Man stories with Steve Ditko were his biggest contribution. A flawed but moral character in a complicated world. That's a great starting point for a kid trying to understand how things work. And with all due respect... That clearly wasn't Ditko's contribution to Spider-Man. Mm. Uh, also, I love Spider-Man. <laughs> uh, <laughs> rest in peace, Stanley. Uh, yeah, and I think it's just so yeah moralistic. The kind of the the, the nice side of Spider-Man was largely from Stan. I have this idea in my head of great short story writers, and I'm I'm going to say it's an idea in my head because I've never researched it, Kevin. But like. I believe that like the 50s and the 60s, 1950s and 1960s in America was like a golden age of the short story in that you had things like television would have anthology shows like Twilight Zone, you know, or you'd read, you know, Playhouse 90, where they'd be putting these like short plays on TV, um, probably partly because cameras were limited in what they could do and putting a play on that was mostly statically filmed was like useful i don't know why but like and you also had like people like isaac asimov and ray bradbury writing these great science fiction short stories and alfred hitchcock would you know lend his name to these like short story collections like alfred hitchcock's favorite horror stories and magazines like the saturday evening post would publish short stories and i think they were just kind of everywhere uh and if you were um a reader you read a lot of these short stories and i think stan read a ton of these and these short stories of this era, in my mind, 
were like both literate and blue collar. They were both art artful and mindful of like using words specifically, but they weren't being done by people from like Ivy league schools. They were like kids who like wrote their way to success. Like as a, like a Philip K. Dick was like a, you know, not a wealthy guy before he, before he made his success as an author. And I think Stan, you know, it was an era of like blue collar guys and women. I wish there were more women, uh, who pulled themselves up by their bootstraps um, and wrote their way to a career. And they, and they, they had certain codes of writing, like, you know, using the active voice and using a select $5 word now and then. And Stan to me was of the tradition of the great short story writers. Um, but he applied that to comic books and he brought like truly great sci-fi and fantasy uh, aesthetic to this uh, to a world that was just like just drawings like he really brought that writer's voice forward uh, of, so I think I think of Stan with Rod Serling and Ray Bradbury as like I don't know like the champion of the short story uh, that's an interesting take uh, yeah I think that sounds cool yeah um, and things like you know what what the quote you just read from Gabriel what was his last Hartman. name yeah, like the humanism, like a lot of those old sci-fi stories, you know, were like parables and morals. Um, the twist ending was like, ah, you get your comeuppance, you know, justice rears its head in some way. Um, and Stan really let that come through and create. And, and then once he stopped being the dude who, who was actually having a hand in all the characters, he'd created a culture and a precedent and I think even today, if you're someone who writes for Marvel, you think like, I got to let this character has to be truthful. What's the human side of this character? I'm working for Marvel. I got to make sure I show that. Well, I mean, and the stuff that Marvel did that Stan did with Marvel uh, affected everything around it. A DC, current DC comics, owe a huge debt of gratitude to Marvel comics. When I was reading a lot of DC in the uh, late 80s, they read more like Marvel comics than the old DC comics. And I think some... DC Comics fans didn't like that, but like the characters got uh, more human, they had more problems, they had more issues, they felt yeah. more like Spider Man and less like Clark Kent. Uh, right, and I'm including Clark Kent when I say that. Like Clark Kent's problems became more life problems versus, you know, I think like in the Golden Age comics, his problems were, uh oh, Lois is trying to figure out who Superman is. Right, uh, but by the time I was reading comics, his problems were. Like everyone else's problems, like, oh, I'm having this issue at work. Uh, you know, my my parents are sick or yeah, um, just like a, adult human problems is what Clark Kent was having. And uh, that would have definitely infected the comics. Like when I was reading the Flash comics, it was Wally West was the Flash. And he's okay. definitely a Spider-Man type of character. He's definitely a Marvel type character. He was a screw up um, who was just trying to figure it out as he went along. He couldn't get out of his own way sometimes. Yeah. Uh, and even um, Hal Jordan, like when I was reading, uh, Jared Jones was doing a long run on Green Lantern. And obviously Hal Jordan has been Green Lantern now for a long time in comics. But at that time, he was portrayed more like a guy who just like couldn't figure out his place on Earth versus just like the superhero cop. Uh, and all that stuff came from Marvel. And definitely anytime there's a new comic book universe... Anytime someone tries to do a new superhero universe, and I'm including Image Comics in this, like Wildstorm Comics, um, they feel like mar inspired by Marvel. Yeah. There might be aspects of inspiration from DC, and there for sure are, but the the feel of those comics is a lot of Marvel, whether that's Stan Lee Marvel or stuff that was built on top of Stan Lee. depends on the book, but uh, everything does it. Even when Alan Moore did his America's Best Comics universe with tom strong and promethea in the uh, late 90s yeah and a lot of that like promethea feels like a one woman type character but there's a lot of marvel in those comics including yeah. the way alan moore creates a voice around those comics with his uh, letter pages and uh a sort of ads for other comics and front page text pieces that all feels like marvel stuff it's very Marvel, I think, to halfway through an issue, put an asterisk on a piece of dialogue and then in the caption explain what that dialogue is referring to to you, the reader, in like a super enthusiastic or even jokey way. Like that to me is one of Stan's tropes. 
Yeah, it's just uh, he affected everything, including the people that came before him. And it would yeah. be that good that like your competition has to change. His soda pop was so good, Coke had to change their formula, basically. Exa- yes, exactly. Um, and, you know, he he was the little guy for a long time. Marvel was the little guy. They didn't have as many people as DC. They didn't have as much resources. I also like that Stan loved comic books. And that's probably true of a lot of people in comics. Uh, but it came through in what he did and the way he talks about comics. Like, he doesn't... Like, I think the first few years, he was sort of embarrassed by it because of his perception of what people thought about comics. But I think he genuinely enjoyed writing these comics and making these comics. And as they became more popular, he was able to like enjoy that and be happy about that. I think he looks back at being like, Oh, I'm glad I was a comic book guy. I love these books. And he for sure looked at the Marvel characters and were like, these characters are as good as any stable of characters ever created. Because that's why he so early on was trying to sell this stuff to Hollywood. He basically wanted the Marvel Universe that exists now with like Avengers feature films. That was Stan. He was like, yeah, that should exist. I'm so glad that he lived long enough to see that happen, to see like movie technology get to the place where they could show it. And also the development machine to get to the place where they could tell good stories. I mean, he got to see a lot of great, great Marvel movies. He definitely looked at Spider-Man as like, yeah, this is our Mickey Mouse and Fantastic Four is our Goofy and Donald Duck or whatever. It's just like these are characters that should exist forever and you can tell stories with them forever. And we should be able to make movies and television shows and cartoons. Uh, Obviously, from some a lot of that was to make money off of them. But he thought the characters were strong enough to do that. And he was 100 percent right. 100 percent right. The whole TV show must have been so wonderful for him. Yeah, and it was a pretty good show too. Um, yeah, it was a, it was a well received show that ran for a few years. That was his like his co creation, different than what it was in the comics. But it was like it worked. It was something pure about the Hulk. That's like, yeah, this is a story we can tell to an audience that doesn't read comic books. The Hulk, the the power of the Hulk is so crazy. Like people, I mean, if you describe the story of the Hulk, especially the early versions, it's all over the place. But something about him always clicked. Um, and he's just one of the primal, primal ingredients of the Marvel universe. And I don't know what template he is. I said it before, uh, uh, the Hulk, I tried to brainwash my son into liking Spider-Man and it's working relatively well, but he gravitated towards the Hulk on his own. I didn't even try to get him to like the Hulk, but he saw some Hulk images and talks about the Hulk, (laughs) loves the Hulk, wants Hulk t-shirts, dressed up as the Hulk for Halloween. That was like, I love it. He's He's like, "I, I get this guy. (laughs) <laughs> yeah the hulk i get <laughs> uh, so something about that works um the hulk is awesome uh what an amazing character uh and um let's let's uh, you know go go into hollywood he also went to hollywood so early right like i think in the 1970s he left he left the marvel comics offices and sort of founded marvel hollywood yeah, and the, obviously the movies and a lot of the movies and television shows that were made under Stan's watch were terrible. Yeah. Um, but I don't think that's so much, a, I mean, a knock on him so much as a knock on Hollywood for not being able I to think like, so. do them right. I, I think so too. I mean, technology wasn't there. And, you know, by the, when, when Stan created the Marvel Universe in 1961, he'd been in the comics business for almost 15 years. So he knew the ins and outs. He knew what was possible. He knew who was good. He understood like, you know, the capabilities of what could be printed on the page, how, you know, but then mid seventies, Stan Lee going out to Hollywood, he doesn't know he's in a meeting with some television people and they're like, Captain America's got to have a motorcycle or whatever. He'd be like, all right, well, you guys are the experts. Let's try it. Yeah. And I think at that point also Hollywood has seen superheroes as like movie serials, cheap crap. Um, yeah. Not the main thing. And Stan was trying to convince him, like, no, this could be your main thing. This could be, you know, uh, the, this is worth investing in. Yeah, this is you could make this your movies. You don't need to make this sort of like this afterthought, um, which probably wasn't fully proved until Superman, Man of uh, the Christopher Reeve Superman movies. But yeah, that that must have changed everything. 
but Stan, it's I funny, think, saw D- that. Just like in comics, DC was first in movies also. Like Superman was the first great superhero movie, and then Batman was the second great one. I you don't know? know what DC's status was at the time, but I think they just had more money behind them. They were connected to Time Warner, I think, which made, you know, like they just, they were part of a bigger empire. Yeah. I don't know if that connection was always there. If it always was there, then that's why. Uh, Definitely now, uh, before Disney bought Marvel, DC's biggest thing was Warner Brothers, that they had a feature film television producing company behind them. And Marvel didn't. Marvel made Iron Man. They didn't, they weren't part of Disney. Yeah. It's amazing. They uh, I've read, the, I, I, you know, we've talked about it before, but they sold the rights to Spider-Man and X-Men and Fantastic Four to get the money to make Iron Man. And it worked and they built their ways up to the Avengers, which got them to sell themselves to Disney. And now, like, Marvel's here forever. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, smarter and more researched people than us can tell you that story. It has something to do with when they bought Toy Biz and, you know, yeah. there was people there's in the toy biz that helped bankruptcy stories that are involved in there and lots of mistakes and scramblings and barely surviving. Uh, but it's the characters that kept them alive, you know, in, in a way. It's the reason Marvel would never have completely gone away is because somebody would have wanted to buy the rights to make Spider-Man comics. So that right. they could make Spider-Man cartoons so they can make Spider-Man movies. There's darker chapters of the Stanley story that I don't know a ton about, but like Marvel basically fired him in the late nineties, not acrimoniously, but they sort of were like, they were moving on to new ventures. And this had to do with like the merger with toy biz and stuff. And they kind of like let him go. And there was like 10 years there where Stan wasn't working for Marvel and, and maybe wasn't even making that much money. I think they bought him out in some way. He had, he was given like a lump sum. uh, And he took that and started, he like, founded his own company with I called think, pow uh, right yeah or, or there's no there's, Stan, there's stanley, stanley media that was the one i'm thinking of there was also a pow i don't remember the order of these things and it was with bad people he stan is a salesman but i think he is also not a great businessman yeah you'd think that because he was so good at like selling something that he yeah. would recognize another salesman but i think sometimes he was a sucker for a good pitch yeah he and go um, your door convince you of something I don't know if you'd want to give him your money to invest it. Right. Um, he had great taste in stories, but maybe not great taste in financial opportunities. And we don't know the details, but basically he got, he did Stanley media with this guy, Peter F. Paul or whatever that guy's name was. Yeah. And like that ended up being a ripoff deal. And, and somehow he, those guys f- tried, tried to steal the rights to anything. Stanley had his name on. Ugh, it's so sad. And they started suing like Marvel for the rights. Like, this wasn't Stan Lee suing Marvel. This was Stanley Media suing Marvel, disconnected from Stan Lee, which doesn't exactly. make any sense. Yeah, and then like he founded his own company, POW. And, uh, I think that was after, and then, um, but then somehow he got back in with Marvel. Um, they either bought POW or something, or like they they brought him back, and he ends up back with where he belongs. I mean, it's like Steve Jobs left Apple, but come on, Steve Jobs is Apple. He's got to yeah. go back, and Stanley's got to go back to Marvel. And basically, Stanley, for most of it, the end of his career, was like an ambassador to Marvel. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know all the details of it, but I know that there's some like, uh, even within Stan and Marvel, there's like kind of like down periods and up periods. But to us fans, you can't separate Stanley from Marvel. You know, that's impossible. I mean, comics for so long just said Stanley presents. Yeah. Um, I mean, definitely all through the 80s, it was Stan Lee Presents Spider-Man. Uh, yeah, and, there, and for a long time, there'd be those little intros. You'd open up comics and on the splash page, this is in the early 80s and maybe much longer, but you would open up the comic and there'd be the splash page. And on the top of the splash page would be like a caption sort of introducing the character to you in case yeah. this was the first one you'd ever bought. You know, it'd be like, you know, as a teenager... A, a radioactive bar blinded Matt Murdock on his way to whatever and gave him super senses, leaving us with the man without fear, Daredevil or something. And those were always written in Stan's voice to me. Yeah. And then Spider-Man and his amazing friends, Stan was the narrator for that. Yeah. Uh, and that's sort of like probably my first glimpse of him was Spider-Man and his amazing friends, just hearing Stanley's voice every episode. Tune in t- true believers to the next episode. <laughs> Spider-Man and his amazing friends. I love it. Uh, I love it. I would hear every episode. You'd hear that voice. Uh, (laughs) It felt like part of the character. 
He's definitely a talented writer. I do think of him as a giant of the short story movement. That's my own personal take. But also, he really had the world's tackiest taste in adjectives <laughs> and really indulged in them. And it's like a master chef who like put whipped cream on everything or something like that. He's like a hammy uncle where it's like, ah, it's so stupid, the things you say, but you kind of own it. Yeah. So I don't, it, it works for you, but it's so dumb at the same time. I mean, he's, he had his own catchphrases. Nobody has catchphrases. <laughs> Excelsior. And everyone cheered. Like, what? What is going on? And I'm cheering too, so I don't know. I mean, he definitely I mean, I think the other comics creators in the fifties must have been like or in the early sixties, like when Marvel was starting to take off, there must have been a lot of people where it's like Stan is doing it. Stan Lee is making it. There's another thing about Stan, I know I'm jumping or jumping around a lot. Um, but when he gets interviewed about controversies in comics at least over the like the last 10 years i feel like his answers were always great um i'm sure there are times where it wasn't but i remember him being asked if donald glover could be spider-man uh and he was like yeah that guy's great he's a like he wasn't like oh no spider-man's this white guy yeah he He was thought through all the the, i think that was like a trap question what do you think about donald glover and he's like he doesn't look like peter would be an old man response right doesn't look like Peter Parker. I think there's probably better people. Why not Tom Cruise or whatever? Uh, <laughs> but instead, he was like, yeah, this guy's funny and young and uh, a little nerdy. He'd be a great there, Spider-Man. There, there was, I think this is true of a lot of people who they get their success by being bold and reckless. He, he was fearless in terms of experimentation. And he wasn't scared of the next generation. And he wasn't scared of changes. Uh, at, at least in interviews, uh, and he was enthusiastic about younger people. I mean, his peers, Kirby, Ditko, had tough relationships with him about money and credit and stuff. But the next generation, like your Chris Claremonts, your Jim Starlings, they loved Stan, your Roy Thomas. Like when he hired the next generation of Marvel people, they by and large loved him and saw him as a good teacher and a good mentor. Yeah. Um, he was a good, he was a good spokesman for Marvel. Like he's exactly what you would want from that. This guy who helped found the company says positive things about us all the time. Never trashes us. Yeah. I mean, as, uh, and I don't blame them for doing this, but like, if you talk to Kirby about Marvel, it'd be before he died, it would be soaked in bitterness. Yeah. They had, like, they, yeah, it should be soaked in bitterness, but from a company standpoint, you gotta be happy when you got a guy like Stan, who's also, just being like, Marvel's the greatest place in the world. Love those guys. No no problems. Uh, it Also, as a fan, Stan was someone you dreamed of meeting because it seemed like he'd be glad to meet you. That That's what at least it would seem like. You know, sometimes you don't want to meet your heroes because it'd be like a bummer, you know? It's like, oh, I met so-and-so and they were like a real grouch and they hated it, you know, whatever. But like our, my friend Todd Fasten, who's a UCB performer – uh, met Stan on some shoot or something and walked up to him and said, I'm a huge uh, Marvel comics fan or something. And Stan's response was, of course you are. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like, I mean, it's the perfect answer. Yeah, everybody should be. <laughs> I used to like when he would make fun of DC in the Stan soapbox and he wouldn't call them DC comics. He would always use an acronym like our direct competition. Will tell you- competition was another one. I think it's <laughs> I think even that was sort of such a, Stan thing to do like that very early on he sort of was like attacking DC <laughs> like playfully not like mean but just sort of being like we're better than the DC that's a bold thing to do yeah uh, for like an upstart company to say like hey I know you've heard of Justice League we're better yeah <laughs> and that was part of the voice of Marvel to me is this sort of like us versus them attitude. Like uh, when I was growing up, everyone and still people do this. Like, are you a Marvel guy or a DC guy? And I've never really taken sides. I'm like, I just like good comics. I'll read either one. Yeah. But I, that all came because of Stan <laughs> saying like, you got to pick a side, pick a team. Yeah. Are you a Marvel uh, guy? Or are you a DC guy? You can't like us both. I mean, uh, and I think know, it might, I, I fall into that. I think of myself as a Marvel guy and I, and I love it. I indulge in that, you know, make mine Marvel. If I had to pick one, I'd pick Marvel, but I, I don't. I'm, I won't. I, I know what you're saying. Like it's foolish. There's such amazing stories yeah. from so many companies, but it's it's fun. Uh, 
uh, I guess another thing I want to say, we're, we're not qualified in any way to talk about this. Like but that's never stopped us. Yeah. <laughs> Here's how um, you fix your car engine. Yeah. This is what I want to get into. If you have a carburetor and which I don't know what it does, um, get it out of there. Get it. Out, yeah. You don't need it. I'm not, I believe it's the spleen of the car engine. No. Um, you know, uh, I, I do think Stan in general was progressive, uh, and excited about the next generation and full of fun. Um, was he behind the times at all? Like he was an old man when he started, you know, he was 40 when he did the fantastic yeah. four. Uh, there were, there were, he was, he could be tone deaf, you know, within his generally progressive, excited demeanor. I mean, he wrote he, women terribly. We've he wrote women that. terribly. They were, I, I don't know how much I can put this on Marvel, but there weren't a lot of non-white characters for a long time. That's true of all of American culture at that time. Yeah. But you kind of you kind of wish that Stan who was so ahead of the curve in terms of uh hu- humanizing his characters and making them emotionally relatable and giving good artists lots of freedom. You you just sort of wish that he was a guy who was more ahead on that stuff also. Um uh you know that's that's the just the way that that's just the way it was that he he wasn't necessarily. I mean they had Black Panther as a truly great character that he and Kirby came up with. But there, there wasn't a ton of that. Yeah, uh, that's something that. I, but I, I guess it's funny. It's t- talking about picking sides. Like I identify with Marvel, and I still want them to always do the right thing in that way. Um, like I'm excited about the new Captain Marvel movie. Well, I want it. I want it to be great. Not to uh, just to jump off that a little bit. Like the uh, so we talked very uh, briefly about Comics Code was a thing on the cover of Comics that. Um, told you what sort of content could be in the comics so you didn't like corrupt children. Yeah, this is in reaction to this huge anti-comics thing that happened in the mid-50s where like there was a congressional hearing that comics were like ruining young minds and some other kind of BS. And so the comics code was like basically showed that you had pleased the censors. Right? Yeah. And uh, and I don't know whether this started with Roy Thomas or Stan Lee, but Stan Lee definitely had a say in this. Like Spider-Man did a drug use story with Harry Osborn where he was on, uh, I guess, heroin. I don't know. He just addicted to drugs briefly. I think this was a time in comics when they would just say drugs and leave it very amorphous. Yeah. Um, and they did a story about it and they did not have the comics code permission to do that. It was too, that was too racy. And they did it anyway. And like Stan was definitely a part of that. I think you couldn't have done that without Stan saying, yeah, that's, that's good. We'd want, I want, like, I don't mind. Like that might hurt our sales. News uh, newsstands might not put us up there, but I think he knew it's like Spider Spider Man will sell anyway. Let's for this issue, we're not we're not approved. Uh, and DC did the same thing. Uh, I don't know which came first. I think Spider Man came first. I should look that up. Um, it was like a Green Arrow or a Green yeah. Lantern story yeah. on DC. Denny O'Neill did it. Yeah, I think Spider Man predated that, but it was right around the same time. And it was just like the writings on the wall, like. I, it's like we need to talk about this, yeah, in our way at least, and and we're not going to not do it because it's scary, and like that's in like another place of just him being brave, I guess, um, and you know pushing things forward again, like lots of ways they could have done that better, and in some ways I think he was always five or ten years behind, but also that needed to happen, and it did, um. Yeah, I mean, he definitely, if he believed in the story, he would go to bat for it. It's, he seemed like he was that kind of guy. Um, I uh, uh, We should sort of move into toward a wrapping up thing. I'll say that the two characters I associate the most with Stan Lee are Spider-Man and the Silver Surfer. Um, and the, the Thing. And the Thing, although I, I do think of Jack Kirby first when I think of the Thing. Like, he seems such a Kirby analog, but... The, yes, the thing's another one of the great characters that Stan Lee collaborated on. But the reason I think of Spider-Man and Silver Surfer is I feel like he took a real personal interest in these two, you know, more than just as an editor recognizing a good story or a good character. Like, I mean, the Surfer definitely he like elevated. He loved uh, the Surfer. Yeah, he spun the Silver Surfer off into his own comic because he wanted to write more Silver Surfer stuff, which started to fracture his uh, relationship with uh, Kirby. I think the way it happened was Kirby just drew the surfer in the background of some some scene, a guy on a surfboard flying, 
Stan saw it and was fascinated with that image and asked Jack, can we expand this into more of a character? This must have been in the Galactus series, but I don't don't 100% know for sure. And then Kirby did that. And Stan was like just immediately transfixed with this weird image of a dude on a surfboard. Uh, And he, you know, it was, I think it was Stan's interest that made the surfer more of a prominent part of that story. And then, like you say, spun it off. And Stan felt ownership over this, an emotional an emotional connection to it. Yeah, and I think so did Kirby because he had drawn it. Um, of course, yeah, of course. And I think that did start some fracturing. But yeah, it definitely was a character. And I think Stan has said as much that the Silver Surfer and Spider-Man are like his two, the two sides of him. And the reason why the surfer really interests me is Spider-Man was a hit. Spider-Man was a commercial hit. The fans were demanding more, you know, even if you didn't like Spider-Man, if you're someone who's interested in the fortunes of Marvel comics, you want more Spider-Man because he's, he's becoming the the whole operation. I don't think people were clamoring for silver surfer stories, but Stan wanted it anyway. And so I, you know, that, that's, that is a decision of the heart, not a decision of the, uh, uh, bank book there. Yeah. And so that really interests me. And, you know, Jack and Stan, they separated Stan and Jack left Marvel for DC um, and for years they, they were, you know, there's like a radio interview show where Jack Kirby's complaining about Stan Lee and then Stan Lee calls in and they have to talk. Um, but then they did get back together in the late seventies and what they did was a silver surfer graphic novel. Yeah. It was like a retelling of the origin. Yeah. Without the fantastic four. Right. That's right. And it was full of very purple prose from Stan Lee, but also very joyful, happy prose and these beautiful drawings. And it's, it's a sort of happy coda to the Jan, to the, to the Stan and Jack story. And it was the silver surfer that, that got them back to the table. Um, I agree with you that those are the two characters. So I also think the thing a lot, just because of sort of the, the tragedy, uh, it's a different sort of tragedy than Spider-Man's tragedy. Spider-Man's more guilt. Um, the thing has that Uh, sort of woe is me aspect. Yeah. I, he's thing is the heart of Marvel comics, right? I mean, he, yeah, especially the silver age sixties, like the thing is the emotional center of the whole operation. And the things type of wisecracking is the most Stanley, even more than Spider-Man's jokes. Yes, I agree. I agree. That's sort of like, uh, 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 am I too handsome for you? You know, like that's sort of (laughs) sarcastic, It's like coming from a place of sad, like when, when the thing makes jokes about how handsome he is, he's being self-deprecating to sort of protect himself because he, he's very self-conscious of that. And that's sort of all, and I don't know how well thought out that is by Stan, but it's all there in those lines of dialogue from the thing. I don't think the Fantastic Four works at all without the thing. Uh, not at all. I totally agree. He's the best character, certainly in the sixties era, Fantastic Four. He's the center of it. Yeah. I mean, um, and I think about him a lot. And then I also think about J. Jonah Jameson. Oh, right. Um, <laughs> who, like, when Stanley writes himself in the comics, he makes the same jokes that J. Jonah makes. <laughs> like, Stan writes himself as basically a nicer J. Jonah Jameson. Yeah, like a skin flint Someone sort of posting, like. Uh, there was, like, a series of comics and Stan came back to Marvel where he met up with the characters that he created. So it was, like, Stanley meets Spider-Man. Stanley meets the Silver Surfer. Um and there's like some one of those where uh, Stanley's talking about how uh, he's like, you think you've got troubles. My hand hurts from all the autographs I have to sign. <laughs> it's like, that feels like a big line. It's like not humble at all. <laughs> there's some there's some early cartoon that like I saw once um, <clears throat> pre Fantastic Four when Stan was, you know, the editor of I guess what was. Atlas Comics, whatever it was called before it was called Marvel. Timely. Okay, Timely. Okay. And um, pre-Marvel, but the same company. And like the office staff got Stan a Christmas card. They drew him like uh, a Christmas card. And the picture was Stan in his office. And he had signed everything in the office, Stan Lee, like put his name on the desk, on the door, on the dog that he just like loved putting his name on things. It was like, yeah, kind of like roasting him a little bit. Uh, I think people who worked with Stan, they both loved him and they also knew they knew him. 
they they knew his indulgences and uh, there was both an affection and also we're not letting you get away with. I don't know, like to to know Stan seemed to be to know the Stan Lee character as much as the real person. Did you see the Onion headline yesterday? Uh, yeah, the, the, they referred to him as a, a character that was created by Stan Lee. They said Stan Lee, creator of beloved Marvel character Stan Lee, dies at 95. Yeah, it's very funny. Loved it. Loved it. Um, I think we might have covered it, Kevin. I think we've, I think we've, we might have covered the ground we had to cover. Um, Can you think of anything big we're leaving out? I'm sure we'll think of it later. Uh, uh, just one more thing on those Stanley Meets books that I was just sort of yeah. talking about um, is that um, someone they've been posting a lot of images from them on blogs I follow, and somebody wrote like, "I wonder who co-wrote this with Stan." Like, I wonder who helped Stan with the dialogue because these came out in 2006. Yeah, so not uh, not a long time ago. So Stan was in his 80s, right? Okay, uh, yeah. And an editor responded going. This is a hundred percent Stan. Like all the dialogue is pure Stan. We didn't, nobody helped him like modernize it or anything. Yeah. Uh, that's impressive to me too. That like, yeah, you know, obviously it's still got a little, a little, uh, hokiness to it. Cause it's Stan, but I don't know. Like he still had it. He always still had it. And the fact that you tell the story about meeting your friend, Todd, like he, he doesn't seem like he's lost. He never completely lost a step, even at the end when people would meet with him and talk with him, it'd be like fun conversations. I think Rob Leefield. Yeah. Uh, recently Stan had like a huge issues with finances with somebody like um, trying to, you know, take advantage of him, take all his money, push away all his friends and stuff like that. And, yeah. And in recent years. Yeah. yeah. And and how much of that got resolved. I'm, I'm still not sure. But, yeah. I, tr- I tried to read about it before we did this episode and it's like a, it's such a web. I'm not sure who the bad guys are, who the good guys are. I mean, like I, I couldn't tell what was going on. Some of the people who were definitely bad guys got pushed away, but I don't know if they all did. But anyway, uh, Rob Leefield, who sort of a, a villain of comics himself, uh, <laughs> who, left Marvel to make image comics with some other guys, but then sort of never really produces a lot. Just sort of got very rich, very quick Rob Leefield. But anyway, he created Deadpool, Rob Leefield. That's his maybe biggest claim to fame. Uh-huh. The creator of Deadpool. And he called up Stan uh, to make sure Stan was okay. And I think went to visit Stan. And I sort of love that. Yeah. Like this like very nineties artist having a close relationship with Stan Lee, a very sixties writer. Yes. Yes. Caring about each other. But they, they, there's a bond there. It's like, Hey, I wouldn't have a job. I wouldn't have a nice sense of identity. If, if you weren't, if you didn't make the things you made. And I think Stan looks at this guy's like, yeah, we're the same. Yeah. We do the same thing. Even though oh, you're a Marvel different things. Yeah. You're a Marvel comics guy. Yeah. Come on over. Yeah. I think that's so that even that is so great to me. Um, Stan seems like the sort of like we, we, when we did our eulogy for Steve Ditko, we talked briefly about how people would have stories about trying to meet him. And they were like, oh, he was nice. He's quiet and he went his way and I spoke to him or he sort of didn't want to talk about this, but that was it. Mm-hmm. Kept to himself. And Stan's the complete opposite. It's like, oh, I met Stan and it was everything I wanted it to be. <laughs> he was funny. He joked with me. He talked with me. He was friendly with me. Every story about meeting Stan Lee is that sort of story. I love it. Uh, I this love guy it so much. was everyone's oh, someone wrote he's everyone's grandfather. <laughs> Kevin, what adjectives would you use to describe Stan Lee's Marvel comics? Uh, the, I mean, the ones he uses. Amazing. Fantastic. Incredible. <laughs> I'm thinking more like or not even not even words, but terms. I'm like, you know, sense of humor. Yeah. Uh, hu- human. Um, like if we were going to do an improv invocation on Stan Lee. Yeah. What would what would the I am phase end up being? I am uh, um, cohesiveness. Uh, I am shamelessness. I am fun. Uh, I am a sense of justice. Uh, I am. Uh, uh, I, I am not easy. <laughs> uh, yeah, I am. I am a challenging vocabulary. Uh, uh, I am, I am alliteration. Uh, I am fun. You said it, but I wanted to say it too. Yeah. Um, I am a, a real realness. Yeah. Uh, I am reckless and adventurous. I am love. Uh, I am joy. 
Um, I am relentless. <laughs> uh, I am a con- I am a conqueror. I am. I'm words. <laughs> yeah, words. Uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, I am short stories. I mean, so much of, when people talk about old comics, when people talk about having never read the original Spider-Man comics before our podcast, they talk about how it's like, oh, there's just so many words. I love it though. But like, I love it. Those comics, it's like, oh, these are the right number of words for this story. I don't know. Yeah, they don't stand out to me, but I guess I got acclimated to them when I was a kid. So, but I mean, that's that's Stan. Like, that's his contribution was just there. Um, and uh, yeah, and it was really fun to do this this Spider-Man podcast to really go into detail on what I think is his greatest creation, greatest co-creation. Yeah, uh, uh, Spider-Man is important to me. And uh, uh, so, therefore, so is Stan, and so is Ditko. And mm-hmm. it was never better than when the two of them were doing it together. Oof, so good. Um, uh, what do you think, Kevin? You think we got it? Yeah, I, I mean, I, sorry to our listeners that this is a little more rambly. I think that's the nature of the podcast medium. Um, uh, so, hopefully, you were able to follow the threads. <laughs> what we were talking about, I, I think. We've said this numerous times on this podcast, but I think the big takeaway is that, and this stuff will come and go even now, that Stan, you know, is Stan a jerk for taking credit or Stan uh, um, a bad guy? And I think that stuff, don't let that stuff overwhelm how important and how good and how talented he was. Yeah. Just instead of saying like, oh, Stan is nothing. Jack Kirby is everything. Just remember, it's like, no, Jack Kirby is everything and Stanley is everything. That's absolutely right. That's the way to look at it. Don't You don't need to take away from Stan to make uh, Kirby and Ditko and even other creators everything that they are. Stan was just as important. It, it was uh, it was a collaboration between those guys. Yes, and Jack that- Kirby, Jack Kirby was probably the biggest amount of talent of those dudes. Yes. Uh, by himself in I, terms of story and art and, and passion. Yeah. Jack was probably importance like that without this person, it doesn't happen. You need all three of those guys. I think you need, you need all three of them. You need Spider-Man. So therefore you need Ditko and then <laughs> everything else was Stan and Jack. Yeah. Uh, and you need, and, um, and you, I think you're absolutely right. Like so a lot of these criticisms of Stan are totally fair. He went through a time where he let other people, not get the credit. He, he let himself get too much credit. The specific and, criticisms are fair, but I think if you let that make you decide that Stan was just sort of a, a face, a salesman, like I talk about that as an important part of him, and I think it was, but if he wasn't yeah. just that. He was so much more. But also that sales, you can't undersell how important it was that he sold. Yeah, let the, don't, don't let the, albeit fair, criticisms overwhelm the story. This is a guy... He's the architect of Marvel Comics. He's a brilliant writer and editor, and he—it's—he uh, he deserved the fame he had. These other guys also deserved it. They didn't have as much fame as they deserved, but that doesn't mean that Stan didn't deserve what he did have. Yeah, um, he put that love into Marvel Comics, and all of his fans give it back to him, and he deserves it. Yeah, Stanley is uh, Sp- Spider-Man's dad. Spider-Man's dad, yeah, Marvel's dad. Um, so uh, I don't know. Read some old Stan Lee comics. <laughs> That's what read, I said. Uh, read the Master Planner saga. Read Amazing Fantasy 15. Read This Man, This Monster, the Fantastic Four story. I think if you could find that Silver Surfer graphic novel that he did with Kirby, I think that's a good read. That's a, yep. Yeah, that's a really lovely one. I might. All the, or- uh, cool. Yeah. Uh, go. Cool. You were saying something. I was, re- read the origin stories of, you know, read like the first issue yeah. of Iron Man, the first issue of X-Men. Like they're flawed, but they're fun. And that's the birth of all these things. Read the first six issues of the Hulk. Yeah. Those are a blast. Um, yeah. Read the Avengers, man. The first four issues of the Avengers are really fun. Yeah, just Even just the first issue. It's a told, it's a collected complete story in there. All those characters coming together in a very fun way. I mean, that's his justice league. Yeah. Um, but even his justice league didn't involve his biggest characters. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, Maybe Thor. I don't know how big Thor was, but it didn't include the Fantastic Four and Spider-Man. Hulk was in there for a couple Hulk issues. Was, the Hulk comic had been canceled by that point. The Hulk <laughs> was only in there. Oh, it's so crazy. Uh, 
Yeah, it was the Hulk, Ant Man, Wasp, <laughs> Iron Man, and Thor. Yeah, that shouldn't work. It shouldn't have worked as a movie. It shouldn't have worked as a comic. <laughs> That's a stand, man. Um, his cameos in movies. I know we're wrapping up, but I think about them. Yeah. It's like they're one of those things where it's like, are these are these taking me out of the movie? <laughs> uh, are these good? Are, is it bad that they feel forced to put these into all of them? And yeah. today it's like, well, I'm glad they're all in there right now. I don't know. They're so wonderful. Um, got to find, well, got to find the super cut of all the Stan cameos. Yeah. I mean, the truth is some of them really work and some of them are a little bit much. And that's sort of <laughs> what Stan was. It was like, sometimes he's a little bit much. <laughs> yeah. I love him. I, I was like when the audience would clap when he would show up. Yeah. He was the bus driver yeah. in the most recent Avengers movie. Like 20% of the audience would always clap. They'd know who he was and. Uh, I haven't seen the new Ant-Man movie, so I don't know where he is in that. I guess that was his most recent appearance. I I assume he'll be in the new Avengers movie because that's already done filming. And I assume then that's it. I know they pre-filmed some, but I got to imagine they won't use them. I think they pre-filmed them in case he was too sick. Yeah. Um, well, but I look forward in, to him showing up. He'll be in the last Avengers movie and uh, hopefully star. Hopefully they've retroactively made him star in the movie. <laughs> that would be a terrible decision. <laughs> Let me do it. Which way do I look? <laughs> Iron Man, take my hand. I'll stop Thanos. <laughs> he pulls out like a typewriter and just rewrites the story. It's like a very meta ending. Uh, yeah. Now Thanos. Now Thanos is in college and he's worried about his his the new dance. <laughs> He wants to date his the girl across the hall, but he's too shy. <laughs> <laughs> the five jewels in the in the the whatever the infinity gauntlet doesn't include one that lets you do the mambo. <laughs> um, yeah, I'd see that movie. <laughs> be a total shift. I think it takes some getting used to, but I think it would work. Um, anyway, uh, thank you everyone for listening. Yeah, thanks anybody who listened to this, and uh, rest in peace, Stan Lee. And I really love all the tributes and everything that everyone's writing out there. So if yeah. you're one of those people writing them, keep it up. I love yeah. hearing what everybody thinks about them. Thank you, Stan. Uh, you were very important to a lot of people, including uh, me and my brothers. Yep. The Heinz brothers salute you. Um, and thanks, everybody. We'll be back in some form at some point doing something. And we will put an episode in this feed when we figure that out. Yeah. Okay. Everyone, thanks to Campfire Media for letting us just throw another episode up here. Yeah. Thank you so much, guys. All right. Bye. Bye. Screw it. Screw it. We're just going to talk about Spider-Man. Campfire.